But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. God, thanks for your word, your scriptures that you leave for us. And God, we ask that you would direct us, open up our minds and our hearts as to what you have for us. Not necessarily what comes out of my mouth, but as you are a living, dynamic God working, that you can speak through a donkey. So, Lord, we ask that you would speak to people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, and a lot of Christians, or even non-Christians, know that kind of tidbit. But looking at it biblically and scripturally, that's referenced back in Luke chapter 6, verse 16. But let's put ourselves in the sandals of the disciples for a moment who are with Jesus at this Passover meal. Because none of those disciples actually knew that they were sitting or lying, reclining at a table with a traitor. They had no idea that Judas was going to betray Jesus. Now, Judas, he was a messed up dude because it would be horrible enough if a stranger looked to set up Jesus and turn him in. But this is one of his close friends, really close friends. Uh, This is not a casual acquaintance. 
This is a person that hung out with Jesus every day, that was walking with him every day, that was witnessing these miracles, that was learning from him every day. And and this was a person that was loved for and cared for and valued by Jesus regularly. So this is not just a casual acquaintance. So Judas received all of that from Jesus and he betrayed him. So let's get right into our text this morning because we have a lot of it. So verses 21 through 23. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So you notice that Judas wasn't the obvious one. These guys have no clue. They began to question one another. And so these guys are clueless as to who was going to betray Jesus. And Judas was really good at keeping this hidden within himself. If there was any hint of Judas betraying Jesus, he hid it. These guys don't have a clue. And he hid it really well. And this was really dangerous territory for Judas to be in. And maybe some of you find yourself uh, in this right now where you're hiding You're hiding what's really going on inside of you and you're not exposing the sin that is within you. And it's really easy to hide within a church body because you can just kind of look how you look on a Sunday and then you're off. So the Sunday Christian, this is very easy to do. This is even easy to do with folks who are involved with spiritual things throughout the week because Judas was involved with Jesus for three straight years, right? Every day. And yet he hid this from them. And maybe you portray yourself to be something on the outside that is actually inconsistent with the person that you are on the inside. And you've been good at hiding who you really are. The disciples didn't know Judas was a traitor, yet Jesus did. Yet Jesus was so gracious toward Judas, even though he knew of Judas' betrayal. If you knew of a close friend who would betray you, would you be inviting them to your last meal? your very last meal before your death, wouldn't you give them a piece of your mind? Right? Wouldn't you respond in anger and disbelief? And I mean, what would you do? I mean, at least pinch them or something, right? You do something. You'd respond. But not Jesus. Jesus was so kind. I'm sure Jesus was cheering for Judas. He was kind of hoping that Judas would repent, knowing that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. If Judas, one who experienced Jesus regularly, witnessed all that Jesus did daily in his life for three years, could betray Jesus, surely we can. Going to church, involvement in ministry, all those great things do not equate to a relationship with Jesus. Now look back to Luke chapter 13, verses 23 through 27. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
Just because you hung out with Jesus doesn't mean you're a disciple of Jesus. Just because everything on the outside indicates you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that what's going on on the inside corresponds with that. How's your heart? How's your heart towards Jesus? Because you cannot fool God. You cannot fool Jesus. You may be able to fool us. You may be able to fool the people around you here. Because it's really not that hard. It's really not that hard to show you've got some religion going on. Right? But Jesus knows your heart towards Him. So how is it going inside of you? That's Judas. He had everyone fooled except Jesus. Jesus knew His heart while everyone else didn't have a clue Because everyone else is looking on the outside. They're not looking on the inside. And that's why they questioned each other because there's no evident exterior sign as to who could betray Jesus. The one to be on the lookout for is the one on the inside. Right? Not the outside. And this is something we have to be aware of in our own church. Because our worries are being drawn away from God and they're directed towards people outside the church. We're always pointing to, oh, the culture or these people or that group or whatever, these non-believers and all this stuff. But often, it's from within. Paul wrote this in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is so true. I've been in pastoral ministry for 12 years. and I've witnessed this over and over again. And the worst things that my children have learned have not been from their public school, from the outside Even from Christian kids. Where did you learn that word? Blah, blah, blah. They're they're Christian. Or where did that attitude come from? Oh, so-and-so does it to their parents. They're Christian. Those things are coming from the inside. I don't hear them telling me like, oh, their non-Christian friends taught them those things. They're actually Christians. So I need to get this out. Because all of us have influence. Everybody. Even a baby has influence. Because if a baby smiles, you smile. Right? So everyone has influence. You smile, they smile back. I'm not even smiling and some of you are smiling back. Because of the influence. <laughs> so, so you have to be really careful of how you are conducting yourselves within church. And I'm not just talking about exteriors all the time. right? But some of you are really loose with what you think and what you say and what you do, and a lot of it's in public. It's in public view. And not just physically public, but electronically public. Right? With the social media stuff going on nowadays, and there's stuff that's out there, and I receive it. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on anything. But people see you. And when they see you and they have a concern, they forward your little posting to me. I don't want it. I don't want that. But what you're doing is really having a disservice to the people you're having influence over. And I think you're taking your liberties kind of too far. So if you're in a place of influence, you've got to kind of be careful about how you're portraying yourself. Now, I'm not saying to be dishonest with who you are. Stay true to who you are. 
But if your actions and your thoughts and what you're doing compromise those you have influence over, maybe you need to reevaluate your place in their lives. Maybe you have some things to deal with because you may be doing more harm than good. Just realize who you really are on the inside at the present time and deal with it. It's really important to know where you stand with Jesus and to deal with what's on the inside. It's really important to know where each of us stands with Jesus and to look out for one another because what you see on the outside isn't always the most telling of who you are on the inside. Facebook is, though, sometimes, right? That inside comes out because you all of a sudden get the courage. Oh, (laughs) bizarre. It's a bizarre thing. Anyway, look at how Jesus responded in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So nothing is going to stop God's plans. It's going to move forward. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And the man who betrayed Jesus is responsible for his actions. It says, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. What happened to Jesus was predetermined. It was going to happen. But Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. He didn't have to do that. But because he did, he's held responsible for his actions. We are responsible for our choices. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, but he did not choose that for him. Judas chose that. Just like God knowing whether or not you will believe in Jesus as your Savior, he knows whether you will or not, and God does not believe for you. You must choose to believe. God is the author of faith, but He does not believe for you. Verse 24, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now isn't this just bizarre that a dispute arose amongst the disciples right after, right after He told them someone was going to betray Him. And then they just start fighting. It's understandable that this dispute would be about something else like, who's the betrayer? I can't believe it. Whoever it is, I'm going to get a sword and cut your ear off or you know something like that. But their dispute was about who was regarded the greatest. Jesus just finished talking about the new covenant. He just did the Passover meal. He was just telling them about these elements and how they're symbolic of Him. And right after that, these guys are fighting about who's the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I got to hang out with Jesus in the transfiguration. You didn't get to do that. Well, I'm the one lying on His bosom right now eating bread. And, and, it's just, and, it's, and, and all this kind of stuff or whatever. Right? Oh no, He was one of those transfiguration people anyway. He had a double whammy. He could have been saying, hey, I got this and I got that. And Anyway, how many of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to? How many of us think that we're more significant than we really are, that we are entitled to something? And not saying that you're to swing the other way and to think that you're insignificant and lowly and just the scum of the earth. But how do you look at yourself in light of others? Do you think of yourself more highly or significant than others? And you take a look at the disciples. Really. Who were they before they met Jesus? These are not people of incredible significance or influence, right? These are just regular schmoes. There's nothing special about them. And I'm really encouraged by that. Because the disciples are, were people that all of us can identify with. 
right? They're nothing special. See, if Jesus, if God picked people who were incredibly gifted or skilled or resourced or had this incredible influence over people or they were really well-educated, not all of us could identify with them. But all of us can identify with these guys. And these guys are just regular people who changed the world. We can identify with them because they're knuckleheads. Just like us. We're just knuckleheads. And Jesus already spoke about this dispute and this argument. He's already addressed this before. He already addressed this back in Luke 9. And here we are in Luke 22, and they're fighting about the same thing. Luke 9, verses 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This already happened before. This thing already happened. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now how differently is the world's view on greatness? Because the world's view typically is not like this. The world usually views the least as weak. The last is last. The last isn't first. The last is last. And the disciples were fighting about this right after Jesus shared the Passover meal with them, told them that there was a betrayer amongst them, and they forget about it. They're like, Jesus, um, forget the betrayer talk and forget all this stuff. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And they're fighting about this thing. And it's much like us. Because we often lose sight of who we are in God, and we quarrel. We quarrel about insignificant things. And what's the seed behind that? What's the root of all that? I think it's pride. I think pride is behind all of that. You look back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter didn't get that early on. He didn't understand that at all. But he understood humility by the time he wrote 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Something clicked for him. Because Jesus was the epitome of humility. And you look at what he did before the Passover meal in John chapter 13, verses 4 through 5. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now jump to verses 12 through 17 in John chapter 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And what happened after this? They have a Passover meal. Jesus tells them about a betrayal. And they have this dispute. I mean, truly knuckleheads. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Back to our text in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is the one who serves. Where do you find yourself this morning? As one who serves or as the one who is served? Jesus serves. And yet, many of us sit back expecting to be served like kings. Kings back in Jesus' day, they exercised lordship, they exercised authority to establish their position, to establish their reputation, and they operated under benefaction. So these guys, they didn't pay taxes. They didn't have to pay taxes. Rather, they did something for their community. So they built something. Right? They said, oh, build this thing for us. Build that thing for us. And, and they built that for their community with their wealth so that they would legitimize not paying taxes because they would say, oh, we don't pay taxes because we built this for you guys. And so, you know, I can't pay taxes and build that for you guys, you know, so I'll build this for you guys. And so they solidified their status, and then they would like to put their name on things and say, like, oh, la, 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 I'm the benefactor, and all this other stuff. It happens today, too, right? People, tax breaks, and they put things on buildings in their names. And, oh, I built the building. I don't want to pay the tax. Same thing. Jesus is the one who serves. Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. So this is the background. Jesus washes their feet, has a Passover meal, says there's a betrayer. They fight about things, and then Jesus says this. So bizarre. They're fighting about who's the greatest, and Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Doesn't that sound like a commendation? Right? You're like, really, Jesus? Jesus, you know that these guys are going to take off on you. You know that there's a betrayer here. You know that these guys are nowhere in sight once the religious leaders come get you. And he knew that. He knew exactly what they were going to do and that they wouldn't be around for him. These guys had a dispute who was the greatest, but Jesus saw them differently. He saw them through the eyes of grace. Now, how are we doing with extending grace? Or do we extend condemnation? Because I put myself in... Jesus' shoes here, and I'm thinking, there's no way. I would have let them have it. But Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. I'm like, you're kidding me. That's not true. It is true. Jesus was extending grace. Jesus was hopeful. Jesus was cheering for them. Now, think about this. How much better would our marriages and our friendships and our relationships with our colleagues and family B, if we extended grace more often and we served others more often rather than condemning them and expecting them to serve us. This is Jesus. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Verse 29, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Don't focus on the kingdoms of the world. Focus on the kingdom of God. And know that God's kingdom does not work the same as the kingdom of the world. It's totally inverted. 
The kingdoms of the world seek to be served, but we are to serve. We serve a greater kingdom. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now when Jesus said Simon, that caught Peter's attention because that's Peter's old name. Simon means heard. It means hearing with acceptance. That's what Simon means. Peter means rock. So Peter was the rock. He started in the scorpion king, right? He's, he's the rock. You smell what the rock's cooking. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, to get Peter and the disciples to listen, to hear him with acceptance. He's saying, hear me with acceptance. Hear me with acceptance. Guys, listen up. Satan demanded to have you. Now the you there is in its plural form. Essentially it's saying you guys. It's not just to Peter. It's in its plural form here in verse 31. As in all you guys. You. Like when I'm speaking to you. Right? So this is in its plural form that he might sift you. Again, you. It's plural. Like wheat. So Jesus was addressing all of them here in verse 31 as you in its plural form. And then in verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now the you in verse 32 is in its singular form. So in verse 31, Jesus was addressing all the disciples, you in its plural form, but in verse 32, it's specific to Simon Peter. Jesus prayed specifically for Peter that his faith would not fail. Isn't that just incredible? Isn't that fantastic? Jesus prayed for Peter. Isn't it great to receive prayer? Prayer is so powerful, and I personally love your prayers. Your prayers are what strengthen me, sustain me, help me. I don't think that I could be a pastor without your prayers. And isn't it great when people pray for you, interceding for you, And Jesus is interceding for you personally, not just you collectively, but you as an individual. And take notice of what Jesus said to Peter. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail. He knew it. And he didn't kick him when he was down, which a lot of Christians are very good at doing. You sinner! Whatever they do, right? Jesus told them, when you get back on your feet, strengthen your brothers. Because he knows that he's going to fail him. He knows that he's going to turn against him. He knows he's going to deny him three times, that he's going to run off. He knows that. He knows that already. But after you learn from that, after you get restored from that by my grace, because you were with me to the end, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen others. Now, after the Lord has delivered you, from whatever pit that He's taken you out of, it's your turn to help others out of their pit. To strengthen others who are weak. To help them overcome what God has helped you overcome. To speak into their lives and to cheer them on. There's no one better to help an alcoholic than a former alcoholic. Right? There's no one better to help an addict than one who is further along in their sobriety. Nobody. 
There are places that I cannot minister to because I'm not from the same place you are. I did not come out of the same pit. I had some other pit. But you came out of a pit where you can specifically minister to someone who is suffering from those things. And for those of you who have turned the corner on some darkness in your life, you are giving a glimmer of hope to somebody. That light at the end of the tunnel, you're giving them that hope that the struggle that they are currently struggling with, that you can help them further along because you're further along down the journey. That you're going to be okay. No one can serve better than you in a particular struggle that you have overcome or where you are further along in your journey. But how did Peter receive this from Jesus? Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Infinity and beyond, right? He's ready. It wasn't just like, all right, Jesus. Okay, I hear you. Peter had some nerve, right? Peter had some guts. And I think he was really genuine about how he felt. I don't think he's just making this up. I think he really felt this. He really thought that he was going to do whatever, whenever, however for Jesus. You know, Jesus, I'm going to go to prison for you. I'm going to go to death. I am the scorpion king. I am the rock. Doesn't Peter give you so much hope? Because if you think about this, if Peter really did what he said he was going to do, and he succeeded with it, he got killed. Right, he was doing it, I'm going to go to death with you, Jesus. He got killed. Or he, he was going to go to prison with him and he, he's right in front of Pontius Pilate and he goes through the beating and he goes through everything with Jesus and he goes through all that stuff and he succeeded. How would you and I be able to recover when we fail? We'd look at Peter and be like, oh, he did it. How come I can't do it? And every time that we're impulsive, because I'm impulsive often after like a retreat or a missions trip or something like that. Oh, I'm going to do this, God. I'm going to do this for you. And my quiet times and my dedication, my spiritual disciplines. I'm going to wake up at 3 in the morning and I'm going to focus on prayer for 3 hours before I go to work and all this kind of stuff, right? And you're all impulsive and you make these declarations of faith and you can't keep them. You don't keep them. Even though you have the greatest of intentions and you are dead serious that you're going to do it. I've done that after a missions trip or after a retreat. I'm going to do this. I'm going to wake up at 3 in the morning and praise you, Lord, and worship you. And I do it for like, never. (laughs) I'll snooze. Or like, oh, I can do it at 5. 5, you know. And so we're impulsive and we make these great declarations and we have great intentions. But then we have Peter. Peter did the same thing and we can refer back to him and know that Jesus doesn't give up on us even after our failures. We know that that doesn't happen. How many times have we said that we're going to serve God in that way, right? And we didn't follow through. How many times have we thought to ourselves about how we're going to be more this or more that and how I'm not going to do that sin again, right? I'm never doing that again. I'm going to put that, I'm going to cast that aside. I'm never doing that again minute later you're in that sin right we, we always do that and jesus knows that you're going to fail that's why he died on the cross for you because the sin and the failures keep on coming back over and over again and he died for you on the cross so that it's done no matter how many times this happens it's done and that's why he wants you to place your faith in him and to trust him because he interceded for you and all the failures of 
your past, of your present, and of your future. And he loves you so deeply. And he's so hopeful. And he's cheering you on. Our problem is not self-esteem. Right? Peter's problem is definitely not self-esteem. I think he had plenty of self-esteem. Peter was like over self-esteem. He's over self-confident. And at this point of his life, it, very much so. You see his tones change when he's writing Peter. But I don't think it even entered his mind that he was going to be unfaithful to Jesus at all. I think he was right on. He's like, I'm dying for you. I don't care. But I think the point of failure is where he's also self-reliant. It's him. I don't care. I'm going I'm to die with you. I'm going uh, to prison. I'm going to go to death. And he doesn't even consider Jesus' words because for himself, he's already kind of sold out. He doesn't care what Jesus has to say because for him, he's determined that for himself. But he's completely not self-aware that he's man, that he's sinful. He didn't see his true self and he thought himself more than he ought to have. That he was going to be able to carry this through. And this is all of us because it is impossible to see yourself. You can't see yourself. Because your eyes are on you. Right? You can't see yourself. That's why we need community. You need other people to reflect back to you the inconsistencies of what you are saying and what you're doing. And also to point out the consistencies of what you are saying and what you're doing. And you need the feedback there. Right? It's kind of like when you're going out and you got something in your teeth. You can't see it. You need someone to point it out to you. Right? You need to actively go do it. You go look in a mirror and check your teeth and stuff like that. Or you have to go in your community and you go to your wife or your husband or your girlfriend, boyfriend, or a friend. And go, hey, you got something in my teeth? And sometimes I lie and I tell my wife, no, you don't. Ha, big old pepper thing. Anyway. But you need that. You need the community. Right? And so Jesus said... In verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, what's up with the rooster? Like, well, what's a rooster have to do with anything? What do roosters do? They wake people up. Right? Before the alarm clock, there were roosters. So, they wake you up. Peter, before you wake up, before the alarm clock goes off, before your consciousness is awakened, you're going to deny me three times. It's going to jar Peter into remembering what Jesus told him. It's going to remind him that he will have denied Jesus three times. Now jump with me to verses 60 through 62. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. That's after the third one, right? Judas was kind of pressing snooze a couple times. Like rooster, rooster, rooster. Oh, I'm awake. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. So his denial, he snoozes. His denial, he snoozes. And it's not until like you hear that last jarring, you wake up. And he went out and wept bitterly. The rooster's crow woke Peter up. It reminded him of what Jesus told him. It awakened his consciousness. And God is so good. 
to give us those alarm clocks, to give us those roosters, reminding us of what he has told us. And he's so patient, you know, you're in your sin and you you continue to do it and you continue to do it and you continue to do it until there's a time where you're awakened into this spiritual consciousness like, I'm messing up. I need to repent. And it leads us towards repentance. And once we reach a place of strength, once we reach that place of repentance, what are we to do? Strengthen others. Strengthen our brothers. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And now this was in reference to sending out the twelve apostles back in Luke chapter 9, verses 2 through 3. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. This was also in reference to when Jesus sent out the 72 back in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. But things have changed. Things have changed between Luke chapter 9 and 10 and Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 36. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. But now, things have changed. In other words, your life is going to get really difficult. It's going to get really hard. What lies in your future is going to be really dangerous, really troublesome, really problematic. So, brace yourselves. Hold on. You're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to prepare. And we hate change, don't we? We hate change. We're trying to change some things at the church right now, and we're already getting resistance to change. But we're going to change. We're going to change. And there are times we have to change. Where we have to change personally and we have to change as a church in order for us to move forward. Now before they could head out with not a care, no money bag, no knapsack, This was because they didn't really have to worry because people were hospitable and people weren't trying to kill them. But now, things are going to change. Take that money bag. Take that knapsack. And this is so serious that if you don't have a sword, exchange your cloak for one. And that last instruction really got their attention. Because the cloak is a valuable piece of someone's wardrobe especially when you're traveling because this was their snuggie right and do you guys know what a snuggie is the the sleeveless blanket of fleece it's it's really comfortable this is their snuggie so this is what kept them warm at night this is when they were out and you know foxes have holes and birds have nests but you know we have nowhere to lie our head this is that this is their snuggie And so when Jesus told them, get a sword instead of uh, your Snuggie, this is serious because you're asking the disciples to give up their Snuggies. 
And so that was like telling someone who's going backpacking in Yosemite, bring a weapon instead of a sleeping bag. I know it's cold. I know your, your Nalgene is going to freeze over and you have to like get an ice pick and pick through it to get to the water. I know it's cold, but bring a weapon instead. And so this would not make any sense to somebody unless the danger was so imminent that the weapon would make total sense to bring more so than a sleeping bag. If you knew that there was danger ahead, if you knew that you were going to get killed or that something was going to happen to you, that would outweigh you bringing a sleeping bag. If you had to choose between the two, you would choose that because otherwise you'd be dead. So Jesus was getting across the severity of this trouble-filled future. He was getting across that things are going to get extremely hazardous, extremely dangerous, and you're going to have to prepare yourself for some really perilous times. They were going to have to be as serious as someone whose life was on the line. You're out in the battlefield, and you're going to have to get that serious. And so we see Ninja Peter break out his sword in verse 50. And he strikes the servant and he cuts off his ear. And then in verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now since this happened, I don't think that Jesus is condoning violence at all. He healed the guy. Yes, Jesus talked about trading your cloak for a sword. But if he really meant for them to uprise in violence and use that sword literally, why didn't he just kind of allow the fight to go on? Why did he heal the guy? Right? Because Peter was obviously game. Right? He was obviously going for it. Simon the Zealot, definitely game. He was definitely game. He was like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. Jesus, you're just so passive. And I'm ready for this. And I don't know about Thomas, though. He would have been like, um... So he would have been like, "Uh, I don't know, I don't know, maybe. But I think a good number of them, they would have been going for it. Some of them were fishermen. They knew how to fillet fish. I mean, they were ready, man. They were like, come on, I got this, right? But, you know, the white-collar Matthew, he would have been like, oh, you guys go ahead. Go, go, go. But, But two verses later, they have two swords, Right? Verse 30. These guys are ready. Jesus says, exchange the sword. We got them! Let's go! And I think Jesus was speaking figuratively about the exchange of cloak for sword. And I think he was addressing the severity of what they were going to face and to have that sort of a mindset and attitude and posture and the resources of someone who's in serious danger. To rest in that, like to be ready, to be ready for a really tough time ahead. And that's why Jesus told them, it's enough. It is enough. In verse 38, because it's not about the number of swords. We got two swords. Chill out. Cool. If Jesus really wanted them to fight, he was like, two swords? Bring them over here. I will multiply them just like the fish, right? And they also, swords. Like, everyone with two and your teeth. Like, ah, right? And, but he says, it is enough. Like, it could have been like pirates. Like, right? And in other words, it's not about swords. It's not about swords. It's about readiness. It's about preparedness for some really hostile days ahead. You're going to suffer. You're going to be in pain. 
You're going to die an unnatural death. You're going to be tortured. And you need to be ready for that. I'm just telling you guys to brace yourselves. To hang on. It's going to be really scary. But they don't get it. They don't get it at all. They, they forgot what Jesus told them in Luke chapter 18, verses 32 through 33. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Flogged him, killed him. And then John chapter 15, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And here, right before them, Jesus' prophecies were being fulfilled and he was warning them of some really bad days ahead of them. Verse 37 in our text, Luke 22, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. What was Jesus doing here? He's referring back to Isaiah chapter 53. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. We don't have time to go into that, but in chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 12, Jesus is quoting word for word. And he numbered with the transgressors. That's the exact wording in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. But let me read just that whole verse to us. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was fulfilling Isaiah 53's prophecy. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus was our substitutionary atonement. Big Christian word, theology stuff, doctrinal stuff. If you're interested in that, write it on your notes. Substitutionary atonement. What is that? Well, before we go on defining what that is, we first have to ask, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? Because put yourselves in someone's shoes who has no understanding of Christianese, which is a dialect of Chinese. Christianese, because we Christians are sometimes really terrible at presenting the gospel. We say things like, Jesus died for you because he loves you. Just let that kind of percolate. Because you and I, maybe it doesn't jar us that much because we have a context and we have a history, we have a tradition, we have an insight to that statement. But put all of that aside to someone who's never heard Christianese before, and a Christian comes up to you and says, Jesus died for you because he loves you. Like, that dude's crazy. Why would he die for me? Why would he die for me? That's just crazy talk. It's just like me and my family. I love my children. I love my wife a lot. I love you guys so much, I'm going to die for you. They'd be like, you're stupid. You need to work, Dad. We need to eat. Don't die. Right? That's stupid, Dad. That's ridiculous. I love you so much that I'm going to needlessly die for you. But if there was a need, then that's different. Right? I'm going to die for you because in, in order for you to live, I have to die. Whatever the reason may be. Stranded in a boat, there's only a couple pieces of driftwood. Can't carry the whole family. Can only carry four. And I'm the fifth. There you go. That would make sense. My dad died for us so that we might live. 
Otherwise, it's just foolish. I'm going to die for you just to prove my love for you. That's dumb. Unless there is a reason, unless there is a need for that death, then it would make sense. If there is a purpose for that death, then the love behind that death is meaningful. Then you can see why. Why Love would show in my death if I died for my family in that way so that they could live. If I gave them the last drops of water if we were stranded in the desert, if I gave them the last morsels of food if we were up in the mountains and and we were stranded up there, if I gave them the last flotation devices because we were lost at sea, if I gave them the last parachutes because we were in the plane, whatever that is, whatever that last resort is before losing their lives, Jesus was that last resort for us. He's the last resort. Jesus' death was in our place. He had to give that up for us to live. A substitutionary atonement. right Where Jesus died for us willingly. Where He gave that last piece of driftwood. Where He gave that last parachute. Where He gave those last morsels of food. Where He gave those last drops of water. He wanted to do this for us. He willingly did this for us. He was numbered with the transgressors. He personally identified with each of us. He was numbered amongst us. And the purpose for His death was to save us from our transgressions. He was numbered as a transgressor even though He wasn't one. And He wanted to die in our place. He interceded between a holy and just God and sinful law-breaking man. He is our mediator. He is standing between holy just God and a sinning man. And he's standing there behalf because we have a sentencing. Because the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is there brokering everlasting life between a holy and just God because the wages of sin is death. And people who believe, trust, and have faith in that he has done that for them. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is the only worthy substitutionary death in Jesus where we find life. Without Jesus' death, we are dead. Right? Separated from God for all eternity. Right now there is grace in that we are physically alive, but in spiritual sense, you are spiritually dead. He bore our sin. He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So He took the place of my judgment. He took the place of your judgment so that you and I can receive life. That's His grace. That's why He died. To give you life. It wasn't like a needless thing. I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. That's just dumb. He loves you so much that He died for you for a purpose. To give you life. God is looking for the good in you. Despite the failures. Despite the infighting. Despite thinking who's the greatest. And even though the, the disciples ran when times got tough, He showered them with grace. Right? He said in verse 28, You are those who have stayed with Me in My trials. He was so hopeful. He was cheering for them. He was wanting them to win. 
And you look at verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus has got your back. Nothing is going to stop Jesus' love for you. Verse 22. For the Son of Man goes and it has been determined. This is done. It's already done. His love for you is done. God is sovereign and He desires to bless you. Verse 29. I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. He wants to bless us. And God desires to be with you. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, and we're going to close here. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is so different from our hand. You go back to our initial verse that we started with this morning, verse 21, Luke chapter 22. It talked about the hands there, right? Judas' hand is oftentimes like ours, that they're hands of betrayal, they're, they're, they're hands that cut people's ears off, they're, they're hands of violence, they're hands of things that are not like God's, and it's not like God at all. God who is always faithful, always righteous, upholding us. The Lord will uphold you no matter what you are going through, and once He pulls you out of that pit, strengthen others. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for Your patience and Your long-suffering in dealing with such stubborn, prideful people. And Lord, I pray for those who are currently in a pit that need help to come out, that they would rely on You and not be self-reliant, that they would work in community, community that can see them. And Lord, that You would surround them with people who have journeyed further along with whatever difficulty that they're dealing with. God, help us to be serious about your kingdom because there are lost people out there and we don't know when you're coming back, but we want to bring as many people with us. You died for them because you loved them and that you took their place in death. In Jesus' name, amen.